Well, good morning. How is everybody? When I told the first service when Pastor David mentioned that I was preaching, I was glad that y'all stayed. So I'm glad nobody got up and walked out. Um, and I, I just, I want to publicly thank Pastor Jason for giving me such a, a light passage to cover today. You know, uh, I mean, we're going to be looking at loving the world, false teaching, the Antichrist, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all in 35 minutes. So, I mean, <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> Hope you brought a couple extra pins with you. I do want to say to you that uh, Pastor Jason highlighted uh, some very important themes that take place in this book, and I want to remind you of those. Uh, you're going to see sound or right doctrine uh, come up in this, this letter. Obedient living and loving others. So those are some very important things for us to take note of as we move through uh, John's letter here. There are a few other points that stick out when reading this as well. And Pastor Jason has covered some of these uh, already too. So uh, just as a refresher, I wanna walk you through some of these. First, as a Christ follower, what sort of people should we be? What sort of people should we be if we claim to know Jesus? You see, the people of God ought to live in godliness and holiness and to avoid the punishment coming to the ungodly and to devote themselves to things that will last beyond the judgment. Uh, one of the verses in chapter two here that really highlights this for us is 1 John chapter two, verses five through six where he says, by this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way he walked, Jesus walked. We need to walk in a way that led to the cross by mirroring Christ's love, faith, holiness, obedience, and self-sacrifice that which will give us a greater assurance of who we are in Christ. As believers, we must abide, we must rest, we must remain in Christ. And we must pursue an intimate personal relationship with him, not straying into conduct that would make us ashamed at his coming. We need to look forward to the return of Christ. He's our hope. Uh, hope is nothing more than anticipation of a future event. And as, as Christians, we, we want to look forward to and embrace Jesus' coming. But there will be many that will lack confidence and will shrink from him because they have chosen to reject him. So his coming is not going to be a good thing for them. But th this doesn't have to be. This doesn't have to be the posture of the world. Second, why, why should I? Why should I walk as Jesus did? Propitiation, a term that is used twice in 1 John, once in chapter two, and then you'll see it again in chapter four, gives us an indication. Jesus not only took our place, but he took our place and he satisfied what God requires for the payment of our sins. So a lot of times we talk about substitute, and I don't think we're in error there, but I think we need to take it a step further, which is what propitiation does, is to say, Jesus not only took my place, but he took my place and he satisfied what God requires for the payment of my sin. Basically, he did for me on my behalf what I could not do for myself. And that's the beauty of the gospel in such an important word. 
So who was John talking to? We are in a transitional period from where Pastor Jason left off to where we pick up here. And you'll see in the text of how John indicates who he's writing to. So I wanted us to take a look at that. John wrote this letter to Christians everywhere. It was not uncommon for leaders in the Christian faith to write letters that were copied and were circulated to churches to be read aloud. One of the major problems that John addresses here in this letter, in this section particularly, is that of false teachers, which we're going to cover today. And since Christianity was only about 50 to 60 years old, some people had returned to certain beliefs and practices that were not from God. John spends a great deal of time here to uh, speaking to this and speaking against the false teachers who did not believe that Jesus actually lived or he was the son of God. These teachers were spreading false beliefs that were in turn leading people astray. And today we can learn a lot from this book from some of the heresies and cults and new age teachings that we encounter and are bombarded with as well. In his letter, John cautions us as Christians to test the spirits or test the teachings of those teachers to see whether they're truly from God or not. Another important theme in this book is love. John teaches that we should love one another because God first loved us. He also teaches that God is love and the creator and the source of all love. And as you read through this book on your own, and I want to really encourage you to do that, please go back through and read these sections that we've touched on and read ahead and just ask God to show you what he wants you to see in this book. And notice that God is the creator and source of all love. But also notice the different contrast that John uses to illustrate truth in this letter. He uses light and dark, the ways of the world versus the ways of God, love and hate and some others. I hope you will notice as well that John is a gentle, loving pastor. This is the position that he is writing from. He constantly uses phrase like my dear children or dear friends when addressing his readers. His love for all Christians is clear as he gently encourages us to stay true to what we know, to love one another. And he reminds us that Jesus Christ, whom he knew personally, is the son of God who came to save us from our sins. And if you grasp that today, if you walk out of here understanding that Jesus Christ is the son of God who came to save us from our sins, I, I think you will have embraced what we're trying to cover today. So let's look at this first section in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's important to look at some key questions when working through passages of scripture. And I think there are several that we can start off by asking of this particular section too. What does John mean when he says, do not love the world? What are some specific things in the world that we should not love? How can our love of the world squeeze out our love for God? And 
what will happen to the world and its desires and consequently anyone who loves the world or gives into the desires of the world? You see, two choices stand before us and really before everyone, even in the church, either we're going to love the Father and pursue what he's about or we're going to love the world and a choice must be made for every single person. A good evaluation question just to ask yourself, and this is one I try to ask myself on a regular basis as well, is that does my life show a strong friendship with Jesus or with the world? I mean, when I evaluate the things that I do and the fruit that I'm producing, I mean, it's just a good point of evaluation. And maybe you want to involve some wise counsel in your life to say, hey, what do you see in? What do you see in my life? Do you see me, my actions? I mean, if I were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me that I am truly pursuing Jesus and not the ways of the world? And if you're getting out of balance there, it might be good to make some adjustments. You see, each day we're pulled into two different directions by two opposite forces. On one side, there's the pull of our faith. On the other side, there's the pull of the world. And what's at stake? The simple answer is our affection, and it's trying to be divided between Jesus and the world. The more complicated one is our souls. Who will we love more? Will we love Jesus more? Or will we love the world more? Are we going to pursue the ways of the world? Or are we going to pursue the ways of the Father? The world's pull keeps us from the kind of commitment Scripture calls us to make to Jesus. And this this is not a new problem. I mean, even James addresses this in his book as well. In chapter 4, James asks his audience to choose. Will you be a friend of the Lord or will you be a friend of the world? And let's make sure we understand the concept, and we're clear on the concept here, behind world. The word in Greek is cosmos, and literally means the basic term for the universe. However, in a metaphorical sense, the New Testament, especially James and Paul, uses the word often in a negative sense. The the world is associated with the passing evil age, which is opposed to God. So when James mentions the world, he is setting up the extreme opposition between God, who is good and righteous, and the world, which is evil and corrupt. And it's crucial to maintain a firm understanding of vocabulary in this section of 1 John that we are studying today. Key words such as world, love, and life must be read with their original meaning in mind. When John uses the word world, again, cosmos, he can mean either the created material universe, which is good, or the world of sin that stands in aggressive opposition to God. Like James, the latter idea operates here, for cosmos represents the unredeemed world, a world under the control of Satan. It lives in darkness and it lies under God's pending judgment. 
John has in mind that Christians are to avoid an infatuation with worldly godliness, with the realm of darkness that brings about base pleasures. Such affection is incompatible with the true love of the Father. And in verses 16 through 17, John lists three characteristics of such affections. And these verses shape the meaning of what we just read in verse 15. These will be on the screen, but here are three characteristics to consider. First, the desire of the flesh. The Greek word for flesh is sarx, which means any sinful desire or interest that draws us away or pulls us away from God. Second, the desire of the eyes, a sinful interest that can be seen, that can be looked upon. Reference King David looking upon Bathsheba and the sinful actions that followed that situation in the Old Testament. Third, boasting in one's lifestyle. This is an attitude or of arrogance or elitism that comes from one's view of their, their wealth, their rank, or stature in society. Notice how John is sketching a, a sweeping portrait here of what it means to be seduced by worldliness and the allure of sin. We must be honest about the threat of the world as Christians. We must be upfront that a boundary does exist between our lives in Christ and the life that is promoted in the world that we live in. And if we fail to warn believers in our churches about the character in the world, they become vulnerable to its influences. Paul had no difficulty in his writings with this sort of honesty. He drew strict boundaries between the world and the church. For example, when he was writing to the Ephesians, they were told to arm themselves for this battle. The Corinthians were told to discern worldly wisdom from godly wisdom and to exhibit a conduct that is unlike the world's. John encourages this sort of speech here in his letter as well. He speaks of overcoming the world because of its inherent hostility toward us as believers. And my fear is that we are becoming desensitized to the influences of the world. Well, what do you mean? Oh, come on, man. It, it, really, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. The things we watch, the movies we see, the entertainment we focus on, the things that we do or participate in. Come on now, pastor. It's 2018. We're not living back, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I mean, let it go a little bit. No, we've got to understand that this world is trying to pull us away from God and doing it subtly in ways that lead us astray in small things every single day of our lives. Look no further than what we let creep into our homes in the form of entertainment. I mean, goodness gracious, Disney movies. Disney movies are no longer safe for our children and gone are the days when primetime programming promoted solid family values. I'm not saying those shows were perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but think back on some of these shows that promoted solid family values and they dealt with situations with their kids and working through those. But instead now, uh, our, our programming is littered with violence and sex and same-sex relationships, seduction and manipulation dominate those shows that we are paying to be piped into our homes. 
Not only are we supposed to disagree with those and move away from those, we are now just like, hey, we're gonna pay you to bring them into our house so my wife and I and our kids can be exposed to them on a regular basis. That's not what we need to be doing. And if you think I'm sitting here pointing a finger at you, I have to evaluate this with myself and my family on a regular basis as well, so I'm with you. You see, Christ followers, we, we, we've got to grasp that Jesus has brought a completely new value system to history, whether our culture embraces it or not. And practically speaking, those who utterly invested in the world and its passions are gonna see it vanish. I mean, it, it's passing away, as John says. It, it's fleeting, it's going away. Only those whose passions rest in the Father will continue forever. You see, the Bible teaches that, us that for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Meaning my life should be all about Jesus. And when I pass from this life to the next, I'm gonna be in his presence for all eternity and that's what's most important. Whereas the world says, for to me to live is stuff and to die is lost. Hey, I'm gonna get as much as I can, how often as I can. It's all about things. It's all, that's where I find my value. Those are in direct contradiction with each other. And we shouldn't be about the ways of the world. You see, a person whose character and personality are shaped by obedience to God will not be affected by the passing away of the world and its vain desires. It's a Johannine way of saying only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I love that quote by C.T. Studd. Let's look at the next section that we have in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and it is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Some more key questions present themselves to us in this section. John didn't use the phrase the last hour with its literal meaning in mind. Instead, he was attempting to convey a sense of urgency to his readers. What was he trying to warn them about? What does John mean when he talks about an anointing? How do you think the Holy Spirit helps us to stay true to Jesus? 
You see, John's general warning against the word is now followed by a warning against one of its end time manifestations. The false teachers who were present were worldly to the core and the readers knew about the predicted arrival of the Antichrist and needed to be alerted to the appearance of many who would display his traits of hostility toward God's Christ. This is a clear indication that history has entered a climactic era, era, the last hour. And despite the lapse of centuries since John wrote, the climax of all things impedes, impends in a special way. The stage has been set for history's final drama. You see, the Bible dictionary definition of antichrist is an antichrist is anyone who opposes Christ, a person who is opposed to the authority of Christ as the head of the church and all creation. The antichrist that John talks about will be a person who epitomizes all that is evil. He described it as one who will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. In verse 19, we see that the departure of the opponents may have had an even greater effect on the congregation than the reason for their departure. The early church obviously had some severe debates, right? We, we never have those, right? We never disagree in churches, do we? I mean, right? Y'all are like, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if, if y'all would stop, my job would be a whole lot easier. I mean, it'd be great. So. so they obviously had severe debates, like any church is going to, with significant differences of opinion being expressed. Yet as far as we know, no one thought that separation from the congregation was an option for anyone professing faith in Jesus. They went out from us, John says, but he's quick to add here, they did not really belong to us. They had been insignificant members of the community and had never truly shared in its fellowship. You see, expulsion from the Christian community for misdeeds was and still is a very serious act. And hopefully it lasts only long enough to allow for repentance and restoration. And let me just say this to you. If we have this, I'm going to take my ball and go home every time we have a disagreement, that's not what the, the New Testament church is all about. Folks, we're going to have disagreements. We're a family. There's going to be conflict at times. But we work through those with gentleness and love and compassion, seeking repentance and restoration. That's what we should be about as a faith family, is seeking repentance and restoration so we can move forward to do what God has called us to do. You see, the case here in 1 John is unique. The departure of the opponents was not expulsion or excommunication, but rather it was a voluntary departure. It shows that they were never truly members of this community. And whether they had actually left or stayed and remained a problem, John was eager to deny connection with them. I wanna point out a few things from Galatians chapter five. Now, you don't have to turn there. I just wanna make a few points about false teaching. In Galatians chapter five, the apostle Paul speaks out against false teachers by using some very strong language. I told the first service, if you have never read Galatians and understood that Paul was hot when he wrote this, uh, you kinda of missed out on the, the writer's position here. He was addressing some things with some pretty severe language and was very adamant about the points he was making. 
So here are five things we should know about people trying to weaken our faith. First, they contradict the truth. This stresses the importance of knowing the truth so we are able to discern truth from falsehood. That, that's why we ask you to read your Bible on a regular basis, participate in these reading plans for you to sit with the scriptures and allow the Holy Spirit to shed light on those with you so you as an individual can understand God's word and you can determine truth from falsehood when you hear it on a daily basis. Second, they are contrary to God. They try to use the Bible to support their heresy. Heresy is nothing more than false teaching. It's taking and twisting things in the scriptures to fit your own agenda. And we have some of that in our world today. And it's amazing how they just want to tweak certain little things and they want to say, you know, no, we're all, we're all about the scriptures. No, you're not. Not if you're trying to change it to fit your agenda and change the meaning of it because we don't get to do that as Christians. And so it's very important to understand that. Next, they contaminate the church. If not addressed and rooted out, it can affect every area of the church and it needs to be dealt with lovingly, but yet swiftly. Fourth, their condemnation is certain. They will have to answer to God. Even if they get away with it in this life, they're gonna have to stand before God and be judged in that regard. And fifth, they criticize teachers of truth. You see, preaching and sharing the gospel will arouse ridicule and opposition. I mean, it's just a part of what we do in our world. You're, you're combating that affection that's being divided with people loving the world and loving God. And when we address that, and people have to look into that mirror of faith to see if they're loving God or loving the world, sometimes it's difficult and we can have some issues there, but it's a worthwhile cause for us to pursue. You see, when Jesus spoke of anointing in verse 20, he was referring to the Holy Spirit. So when John speaks of the Christian's anointing, he likely has in mind their endowment with the Holy Spirit, a gift that is able to give all knowledge. John therefore tells his followers that they too have the Spirit. They have an endowment of equal power and must discern the truth spiritually through the vehicle of the spirit within them. John does not deny the power of the spirit as a lot of pastors and teachers wanna to do today. Instead, he wants his people to test the spirits or test the teaching to see if it's truly of God or not. One byproduct of having the spirit of God is knowing the truth. And I want you to listen very carefully. No teaching from the spirit will ever depart from what has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Let me say that to you again. No teaching from the Spirit will ever depart from what has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. In John 14, 26, the Spirit will recall what Jesus said in history. In 16, 13, the Spirit will not speak on his own, but will speak only what he hears. Therefore, the work of the Spirit must always submit to the revelation that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. If anyone comes along with a claim to have the Spirit and contradicts what we know of Jesus in history, that is, as recorded in the Gospels, his or her anointing is fraudulent. Let me say that to you again. If anyone comes along with a claim to have the Spirit and contradicts what we know of Jesus in history, that is, as recorded in the Gospels, his or her anointing is fraudulent. 
we must understand that John is really trying to combat false teaching here. He, he was trying to address what these people were receiving because he worried that some of them would be led astray. He wants them to know the truth of God's teaching. He encouraged them to follow the teaching so they'll have a faith that is pure and true. And that's really our desire for you as pastors. I mean, our desire for you in regard to the truth of God's word is for you to know it, to believe it, to share it, and be able to defend it. That's why we do what we do. And that's why we strive to uh, study and spend time wrestling with the text to make sure we're relaying that information correctly to you because we want you to know it. We want you to have confidence in it, not just think you're a Christian, not just think Jesus is who he says he is. We want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, hey, Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the God in the flesh. He did rise on the third day. He is alive sitting at the right hand of the father and I'm off track, but man, I'm preaching right now, ain't I? <laughs> Anybody just want to pass the plate and quit now? Man, mm, that's good stuff. Verse 20 through 21 tells us the readers, tells the readers that they were well fortified against the Antichrist. However, since they had an anointing from the Holy One, that's why they were um, protected against this because of that anointing. The anointing is no doubt the Holy Spirit since according to verse 27, the anointing teaches. This clearly suggests that the, the anointing is conceived of as a person. Jesus, Jesus himself was anointed with the Holy Spirit. As a result of their anointing, the readers, perhaps primarily the church leaders, had adequate instruction in the truth of God. John wrote them precisely because their apprehension of the truth was correct and because the truth should never be confused with a lie. The truth should never be confused with a lie. Anointing is the act of pouring oil upon a person's head. It's a symbol of God's special selection for a special purpose. You can look at the examples in the Old Testament of kings being anointed or priests being anointed or someone being anointed for a special situation. When used figuratively, it means the gift of the Holy Spirit as an efficient age in getting a knowledge of the truth. And not that the work of Jesus was imperfect, but the Spirit helps us to understand the truth he taught and thus to glorify him in whom the full revelation of God has been given. The Antichrist that John refers to are liars for they deny that Jesus is the Christ, that is God's son and the appointed savior. This denial involves also a denial of the father. Any claim that might make to having the father's approval is false. One cannot have the father without the son. To reject one is to reject the other. The readers did not need teaching from the Antichrist, or for that matter, from anyone. Um, their anointing received from God remains in them and was a sufficient enough teacher. This, along with verses 12 through 14, may imply that John's readers were relatively spiritually mature since the immature need more of human instruction. This is appropriate if John were addressing church leaders, but it would also 
sued a congregation that had been long or maturing in the faith. Unlike the Antichrist, who may have claimed some form of inspiration, the reader's anointing was real, not counterfeit. They needed to remain in him and continue to rely on the Spirit's instruction. So what does the Holy Spirit play in our lives? What, what role, I mean, really, when you're, when you're looking at from a biblical standpoint, what role does the Spirit play in our lives? I want to give you a few things. The Holy Spirit's role is crucial to our understanding of Scripture. The Holy Spirit quickens our minds to understanding. The Holy Spirit illuminates or sheds light upon God's Word. And chapter 16 of John's Gospel outlines the ministry of the Holy Spirit that He points us to Christ. So think in terms of this. Without the Spirit, the, the whole process really doesn't start because the Spirit is the one convicting us of our need for Jesus. As the Father is drawing, the Spirit is convicting, the Son has done the redeeming work on the cross. And then the Spirit, once we trust Him, indwells within us and then sheds light upon the Word of God for us to become more like Jesus. I'd say that's pretty powerful and important, wouldn't you? So we need to understand and lean upon the Spirit. And when we talk about illuminating Scripture, think in terms of turning a flashlight on in the pitch black dark, and now you've illuminated some ground in front of you where you know where to walk. And that's what the Spirit does with the Word of God. It allows us to see what God wants us to see. Whew. Anybody else sweating? Y'all get all that? That was a lot to cover in 35 minutes, wasn't it? Let me put your mind at ease a little bit, hopefully today. I'm not perfect. I learned so much by putting this message together, reading this text, reading the entire letter, wrestling with it. I'm not trying to point a finger at anybody. Like I said, I've had to wrestle with my own things and working through this. And I struggle with being in this world, but not of it because of who I've put my faith and trust in. I wrestle with the ways of the world at times. I wrestle with what to watch, what not to watch, what to do, what not to do, what you say, not say. However, I am 100% confident that when I put my faith and trust in Jesus, my identity changed. My story became linked up with his story. And I made a choice to pursue Christ and not the ways of this world. And I want to encourage you to make the same choice. And if you have yet to trust Jesus, what are you waiting on? I mean, seriously, what are you waiting on? Hey, do you want to put your faith and trust in something that's fleeting, that doesn't really matter and is going to pass away? Or do you want to put your faith and trust in someone who is God, who is the truth, and your story is going to carry on for eternity? Hmm, not that hard of a choice for me. What lie have you bought into that has convinced you that there could be anything better than Jesus? He's it. So if today, if somehow through this message in the movement of the Spirit of God, you're ready to repent of your sin and trust in the Jesus of the Bible, we want to give you that opportunity 
right now. This is the best part of the service. If you're ready to engage in a lifelong pursuit of him that carries over into eternity, man, I tell you what, I want to help you do that. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, you know, maybe the spirit is speaking to you today and you're ready to trust Jesus for the first time. I want to lead you in a prayer today. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's just voicing what God is doing in your heart and mind and, and helping you to put that into words. You see, the Bible tells us how we are to be saved. All who come to faith are saved by one thing and one thing only, God purifying our hearts through belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. So here's how we pray. And if you're ready to trust him for the first time, just pray this with me. Heavenly Father, I confess that I'm a sinner. I agree with you that you're right about my condition. I cannot save myself. I need what Jesus offers. So I repent of my sin and I put my faith in your son Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.